But now I want to start with our first guest, Bonnie Stone. Bonnie is a partner with the very well-respected law firm of Cat Nugent here in Chicago for over 40 years. Bonnie has successfully litigated uh, on a national basis major cases involving banks, breach of contracts, trade secrets, employment matters, antitrust cases uh, involving millions of dollars. She's tough, experienced, and she gets fabulous results. Truly one of the best litigators and trial attorneys uh, in the country. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we just got off of, of uh, listening a little bit to the Indy 500, or pretending we were listening. We were <laughs> trying to listen. We were trying to listen. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was just thinking, July 1st and 2nd, Chicago is going to have NASCAR street race. And you and I have been sitting here thinking, how is this going to work? I mean, I can't even imagine cars like whipping around, you know, the John Hancock building, but it's going to happen. And I, I want to ask you, you know, you've been around insurance businesses and, and, and business litigation and liability for 40 years. What issues do you see arise and how do you think the city and NASCAR is going to handle what might happen with lawsuits being brought? Right. So ironically, I was watching this morning, I think we talked about it, that Monaco has their Grand Prix and it it already ran and they were already gearing up with barricades, with fences, etc., trying to make sure that the the people that were, the spectators were going to be safe. I think the safety right now is the key question. This is not, Chicago is not the movie set of Fast and Furious. (laughs) Nobody has any stunt doubles here. So we have to treat people like they're real people. They're alive and we need to make sure that they're kept safe. I think that the barricades are going to be key uh, fences and the fences have to be high fences uh, think about like what the uh, foul ball rule is uh, in baseball they didn't have the fences high enough people were getting hit by foul balls they've made the fences bigger they need to make sure that the fences and the barricades are intact and they're sufficient and they're strong enough to protect in the event any debris goes flying in the event any car god forbid crashes um, so that is key I think also key is that the security, including the police, need to keep people at a safe distance. This is not COVID six feet, but we're talking about a safe distance so the spectators feel as though they are participating, they're interested in the race, they can cheer things on, but they're also at a safe enough distance that if anything occurs and anything can occur, uh, that they're as protected as they can be. There will be insurance, obviously. So tell me about insurance. How does this work? The city uh, obviously has money to defend and insurance, but how, how does the insurance issue work in, in a, an event like this? And I, I assume it's similar to, you know, uh, the Chicago Marathon or Lollapalooza or any of those other events that kind of overtake the city. Right. So you've got to show, I mean, the, the key here is to show that they've uh, been uh, productive, they've been proactive, and they're not negligent in the way that they're allowing. It's, it's an event. This is an event for the city. The city gave them a permit, and the event permit uh, requires insurance to be posted by, by NASCAR. The city itself also has insurance in place as well. If, um, for example, there's something that occurs during the race that's the negligence you know, of a driver. and Negligence doesn't mean driving fast. It's a race. You're supposed to be driving fast. The faster the better. If you're not driving fast, go home. You're not (laughs) supposed to be driving fast. So driving fast and going ahead of the speed limit will not qualify as negligence. But there has to be something additional. The fact that somebody uh, crashes or somebody loses control is not necessarily negligence, but somebody's going to be responsible if, in fact, it goes off the rails literally (laughs) and crashes through a barrier and people are 
injured. Uh, it, From what I can see, generally, it doesn't look, I was just looking up the stats on uh, the Monaco Grand Prix, which is not identical, but it's going through the city in some measure. The number of incidents of crashes in that are, are seem to be fairly small, unlike at a normal racetrack. It does seem to be a more measured, uh, calmer event, and I think that's probably what they're going to go for. But either city or NASCAR could take a hit on some insurance, depending on how it plays out. So let's just say, I mean, so some debris flies out, and for some reason the fence fell down and it hurts somebody, and the lawyers come out, and lawyers, you know, we know what lawyers do. Lawyers find where the deep pockets are, and they sue everybody they can to make sure that their client gets recompense. So what would be, who would be the defendants in a case like that, Bonnie? How would you say, like, I mean, the city for, just tell me who the defendants might be. It could be anybody. It could be if they hire a security force, a separate security force that's that are required to make sure, for example, safe distance, that spectators are kept at a safe distance from where the race is so they're not within harm's right way. And they're, they're lax. They allow people to climb the fence. They go over the fence. Security firms that are private could be hit. Uh, the city, depending, again, on on how it is measured, how the barriers are structured. If the fence is weak, uh, there have been lawsuits where the fence was feeble and it couldn't prevent debris. It couldn't prevent anything from going by. It could be anybody. It could be all three. It's lo- unlikely to be the racer unless there's something you know physically wrong with the car where they ignored or neglected something that was clearly at fault or faulty with the, the car itself. You know, fast cars... Um, they spin. <laughs> they have yeah. accidents. It's just going to happen. And so, and there is the other thing, Karen, and I think it's important to remember, there is a view that uh, it's an assumption of risk. People who go to spectator sports of this magnitude, there is a le- level of assumption of risk. You know it's a dangerous sport. You know that there's a possibility. So whoever gets sued, you can assume that those are going to be good defenses. Those will be defenses that are raised. Ultimately, most cases settle civil. So the likelihood is these cases will 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 resolve themselves. But let's root for no accidents yes. in the city of Chicago. We need a solid. Yes, <laughs> okay. we do. We, we need some solids here. Let's root for nothing bad. Okay? Yeah, that's right. I might be gone from the city that weekend, just just so you know. Uh, but what, what, not we, fair. Come back. <laughs> we're listening to the Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're talking to Bonnie Stone. She's a great lawyer here, and we're going to talk about some of the cases that she's handled. And one that I think might interest listeners here is age discrimination. She's handled many cases tried these cases, and she's going to talk a little bit about uh, what, it, what it takes to prove age discrimination and what you can do at the workplace to prevent, um, for, to prevent you from, from being discriminated against based on your age. This is WGN. Age discrimination is real. Two out of three workers between the ages of 45 and 74 say they've experienced age discrimination at work. Bonnie, you have defended, mostly you defend um, companies in age discrimination cases. I know you've tried some high-profile cases regarding this, and you've been very successful. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what uh, a plaintiff would have to prove in order to prove they were discriminated against based upon age? Um, well, first, they've got to prove that they're within the uh, the protected age group, which is shockingly 40. 40 doesn't seem particularly old for me right now, no. but it's <laughs> for me. No, right, exactly. I mean, 64, that was a great song. Um, but we the, the age requirement is 40 and above. That's that's key. You've also got to show that you suffered a uh, an adverse employment decision, and that can be either you got fired, 
you got demoted, you didn't get a raise, or in some cases you weren't hired. So any of those things need to occur. One of those things do. Uh, you have to show that uh, you were meeting in the event that you are uh, employed at the company, that you were meeting uh, the uh, company's reasonable expectations, your performance was fine, and that somebody younger than you either replaced you, got hired by you. Those are sort of key drivers you have to show, but that's not all. Um, the cases used to be much easier for the plaintiff, where it just had to show that uh, age factored into somebody's decision. They thought about it in some way. Uh, but now it is the but-for test. And the but-for test means you actually have to show that age was the determinative factor. So even if age has to do with something, like somebody thought about it, and yeah, you seem kind of old, but that's not really the reason why they did it, uh, you are not going to prevail. It's a hard standard. It is, it's daunting, really, and, they, and the Supreme Court's made it very daunting. You're not going to typically find, if you're, unless you're lucky, some smoking gun email where the, the, the boss says, let's get rid of that person. They're old. You're going to have to, they just, yeah. you might, but it's highly unlikely. It so, might be in a text, but so, it's hard. Bonnie, let me, let me give you a couple examples. Sure. So let, let's just say, and I've, I've heard this listeners call me about these types of cases all the time, you know, making fun. You're a boomer. You know, you're, you know, you know, your knees are making noise. You're, you know, you're not as young as you used to be. Like that kind of banter at the workplace, is that necessarily uh, discrimination, age discrimination? It's not. Um, in fact, um, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts of the Supreme Court actually asked during an oral argument, Did does anyone think that the words, okay, boomer, mean that this discrimination because of your age? And the answer is it's not. It's normal social banter. It's just like when I say sometimes to millennials, I don't speak millennial. It doesn't mean <laughs> that I don't. I'm age biased. It's simple social banter. And people talk like that. They do. That's not going to get to the, that's not going to get you there. You need a whole lot more than that than just simply showing people are kidding about your age. You know, people's back hurts. Yeah, you're getting older. But that's not really where it goes. You really need to show that it's a determinative factor. And there's ways of doing it other than the smoking on email that you're never going to find. I promise those are very tough to find. You can show it by different ways of showing it that, for example, somebody that's less qualified than you got promoted. Somebody that wasn't doing as good of a job and they're younger, they, they went somewhere else. That there were other kinds of commentaries that were made. Big one is, when are you going to retire? That's yes. a huge one. Yes. If somebody comments on your retirement, either you should retire or you thinking of retiring or anything like around retirement, that's a big red flag. That would be the kind of thing you would be looking for. So, Bonnie, what do, I hear this a lot, too. People who are over 40 and, and over 55 are not, you know, as savvy when it comes to tech, uh, myself included. Uh, my job doesn't really require me to do anything completely um, sophisticated when it comes to IT. And I have people who do that, as you do as well. But if if your company is is moving into high tech certain things and 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 the older people can't learn it or they don't know it, can can a boss discriminate against a person because their age makes it difficult for them to keep up with it? Well, I think the the variable is it's not necessarily your age; it's your willingness to learn. I think anybody can probably learn, but the reality is employers can impose requirements for a job, and just because the requirements may have a disproportionate impact on older people, i.e., you need to be savvy on Microsoft and Excel and all these other things that you may not know, that in itself is not going to constitute age discrimination. Employers are allowed to set what requirements, what the job duties are, and if the job duties require you to be computer savvy. 
savvy. Uh, you're going to have to be computer savvy. And I do think that, um, you know, older people, I'll include myself there for sure, um, that you need to be proactive. If you sense that, if you feel that you're going into a tech direction and you're not qualified, I would be proactive rather than reactive later on. Go to your boss, say, I'd really like to learn XYZ of whatever this technology is. Can I spend a week a crash course so that I'm up to speed on all of these things? Those are the kinds of things that will give you protection. If your boss then refuses that after you've tried to get tech savvy, that may give you some some guidance in terms of what you can do next. But the technology, it's it's the reality. Look, my resume does not have on the bottom of it anything about my IT skills. My children, they got pages right. on this stuff. Right. So that is just the reality of the difference. And you need to get with it you do yeah and, and protect and, yourself yeah and instead of getting bitter you know just uh, take, proactive yeah, pro- proactive <clears throat> i want to talk a little bit about a case that came down uh, from the supreme court this week um and it handed social media companies what i consider to be a major victory basically the case was about uh, a victim's family it was an isis terrorist attack i believe it was in istanbul turkey and the family sued uh twitter and facebook and a bunch of social media platforms saying that that the companies had violated the anti-terrorism laws and, and actually trying to hold them responsible because I think under the, the allegations were that ISIS was allowed to sort of uh, uh, mobilize and to foment uh, their, their hatred online and that caused the terrorist attack. Um, what do you make of, and, and the court found that the social media was not responsible. So what do you make of this decision and how far reaching do you think it is? I think there's a couple of things. First, I think it's noteworthy that it was a 9-0 decision. In other words, the liberals and the conservatives banded together. There was no dissension in the ranks on the Supreme Court, which tells you a lot, which is there's not something where you can like pick up a dissent and say, well, there was some variable here. They were very strong on it. They, I think what you've got here is that there is – uh, they're not willing right now to put the blame for a terrorist attack or anything ancillary on uh, companies that simply allow a platform. They are not the creators of the content, and they are not uh, aiding a terrorist. And that's kind of where they were trying to go on the terrorist act, that somehow the platforms had aided and abetted the terrorists by making it more sim- simplifying for them, finding supporters. That just won't do it. There is a uh, a law, there is a statute that was passed, I think it's called the uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which the Supreme Court did not address. But it insulates uh, social media and platforms from anything that would suggest they're responsible for third-party content. They're not. The Supreme Court did not trim it down. They didn't really address it. They simply found that allowing a third party on your platform does not render you aiding and abetting a, a terrorist attack. And that's they did. That's what they found. And I think people are viewing it, even though they didn't address the Communications Decency Act, which gives them a whole lot of cover, uh, that it was a victory for both social media as well as free speech. Bonnie Stone, that was really quick, but we're going to have to take a break here. Thank you so much for joining us, and you'll come back and talk about more of this stuff. Karen, thank you for having me. All right. You take care. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN.